Well, our uh, worship team has had a really busy uh, week. I mean, uh, tonight, of course, is concert of prayer, but all week they've been leading worship at the uh, Great Adventure Boot Camp that was held at uh, Parkway Bible Church, uh, formerly Hill Country Bible Church of Pflugerville. And uh, of course, our students were there all week preparing, uh, getting equipped to teach backyard Bible clubs in our area. Uh, I was also gone this week. I was at the uh, uh, Impact Camp, which is the same thing. It's a great adventure type uh, equipping camp for uh, teenagers who are going to lead Bible clubs in the Temple and Colleen and Belton area, uh, part of uh, Temple Bible Church and uh, um, Grace Bible Church of Colleen. So it's been a busy, busy week there. Also, of course, this week, like beginning tonight, is uh, Go Hutto. They'll be sent out during our concert of prayer. All that to say, it seems like it's perfect timing. Uh, in God's perfect timing, we're studying a passage of Scripture that is all about kind of a radical realignment of our life uh, to advance the gospel. And so if you are able, uh, please stand with me uh, as I read God's Word. Beginning in verse 19, chapter 9, it says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I may win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do this all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings." This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So last week we began looking at Paul's answer to a question asked by the Corinthian church. The passage, chapter 8, verse 1, begins with this statement regarding your question about food that has been offered to idols. And so this was the issue. The issue was that there were certain Christians in the church of Corinth that thought it was absolutely cool to eat food that had been offered to idols, whether in their private home, at a party, or even within the temple itself. And there were other believers within the church of Corinth who said, no, that's a participation in idolatry. It's wrong. Our our past, that causes us to stumble. And so you have an issue of food. You have an issue of... Christian freedom, you have an issue of idolatry, but really the attitudinal issue is the issue of disregard for brothers and sisters in Christ who are caused to sin by the practice of your Christian freedom. And so in response to their question, Paul spends three complete chapters answering the question. Not because the question was that difficult, but because the Corinthians were. But the question wasn't the problem. They were the problem. And so Paul writes at length to equip them with the mindset they need, with the heart attitude they need to deal with these kind of issues in the future. 
Like he wants them to know, listen, you're going to face other questions and you don't need to keep writing me about every question. Okay? So the next time something in this vein happens, just know I'm going to equip you with the theological framework to answer these kinds of issues. And so he bottom lined it for him in chapter 8, Paul concludes that love trumps freedom. Love trumps freedom. It's not about your freedoms. It's not about what you can do. Love trumps freedom. And Paul himself is the example of this. In verse 13, he says, So if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I will never eat meat again. And in saying that, Paul is setting a standard here. And here's the standard. Adjust your standards. Like this is the biblical principle. Adjust your standards to the conscience of others. Like adjust your standards, the application of your knowledge of your freedom in Christ to the conscience of others, to the spiritual needs of your weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, this is a great principle. It's a crazy principle. Like I said last week, this is something that very few of us want to really apply fully to our lives. But I can just tell you in marriage counseling, this is a principle I've gone back to again and again. I'll have a couple in my office, and one of the people in the couple will have a real struggle with the practice of the other person in the couple. Maybe this person is is doing something that seems neutral, but to the other spouse, it doesn't seem neutral. You know, a husband not really liking the kind of relationship their wife has with a couple guys in the office. It makes him uncomfortable. Or a wife not liking the kind of trips her husband goes on with the guys. It makes her uncomfortable. And in all those situations, the person who doesn't have a problem with the practice thinks the other one is taking things too seriously. They're not trusting me. It's crazy. Come on. And I always tell them the same thing. You know what? I think you need to adjust your standards, your practice, to the conscience of your husband, to the conscience of your wife. If it's a concern for her, it should be a concern for you. If it's a concern for him, it should be a concern for you. So just back off of this. You don't need to express this freedom. It's okay. That's living for others. So what does this principle look like for us? Like we said last week, just a few of these, you can write them down if you weren't here. Remember that just because you can doesn't mean you should. I know you have freedom. You can do all kinds of things. That doesn't mean you should do all of those things in every single scenario as if it's not like impacting anyone else around you. Also, remember that your freedom could result in someone else's slavery. Like you may not have a struggle with this issue, but somebody in your group might, and the expression of your freedom in that could cause them to stumble. Like you're out with the guys, like I said last week, and you're just going to have a beer. There's no big deal. It's just a beer. And this younger brother in Christ sees you drinking. Like he's never really stepped his toe into that world. Like for him, because of his family history and his personal history, like he knows he should probably stay away from that, but you're more mature than him. He really looks up to you. Maybe you're his small group leader. And so, hey, he orders a beer too. Fast forward, maybe six months, maybe a year down the road. 
one has become two, has become a six-pack, has become a regular habit of drinking, and now he has a struggle that he did not have before because you had to express your freedom to the harm of a brother or sister in Christ. Next, remember to ask the right questions. Is it biblical? Like, Does God's Word have anything to say about this? Because when God's Word speaks, it's the final word. Is it wise? Like, based on my family history, based on the issues in my own life, should I do this thing? And then, is it loving? Based on their family history, based on their experience, based on their weaknesses, is it good for me to do this thing? Then next, remember to maintain a mission trip mentality. Remember, you go on a mission trip, your eyes are open. Like, to the needs of your team to the advancement of the gospel, you know why you're there, and your eyes are open to the enemy, to spiritual warfare, and you're ready for it. And then finally, remember, we are only able to enjoy our freedom because Jesus sacrificed His. As the ultimate example of this principle, Jesus did not need to give up His freedom. He did that for you, and He did that for me. He sacrificed himself for us. And so, once again, Paul concludes, if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I'll never eat meat again. And then in chapter 9, it's as if Paul decides, hey, let me illustrate this. Let me show you what I mean, okay? I like. I want to give you a real-world example of this principle kind of played out. And so he begins by asking a question in verse 1. Am I not free? Like, I'm free, right? Like, you're you're talking about freedom and how important that is. Aren't I free? Like, am I not an apostle? Am I not a minister of the gospel? Don't I have the rights of the other apostles? Am I not free? Didn't I plant this church? Like, aren't you in Christ because I brought the message of the gospel? Am I not free? And from there, he goes on to present his model of how to how he, Paul and Barnabas and his team does ministry. And this is their model. They offer the gospel with zero expectation of financial support from the churches they are planting. Let me say that again. They... They offer the gospel with zero expectation of financial support from the churches they're planting. Now, the churches they're planting are actually giving generously, just not to the needs of Paul. And so Paul makes makes a statement. He says, listen, it would be absolutely right for them to support us. I mean, in fact, that's that's right. That's the That's the pattern. That's the way it's supposed to be. Like, I'm not saying that, like, I'm more mature than the other apostles. I'm not saying I have, like, I have higher standards in them or anything like that. I'm just saying it would actually be right and fitting for them to financially support us. The Old Testament teaches that. Jesus taught that. Like, the other apostles are financially supported. Paul taught that elders who teach the word regularly are to be financially supported by their local church. He's just saying that's, I just don't do that, right? Like I don't make use of this right for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of those who need to hear it. 
For the sake of the gospel, I support my own ministry. I work a day job and support the ministry. Like Paul did this at great personal effort and at great personal cost. Why? Well, because love trumps freedom. Like, I know I have the right. I know I have the freedom. I know I'm free, but I'm doing this for you. Like, that's why I'm making this choice. In fact, in verse 12, he puts it this way. He says, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Now, remember, once again, he's saying the right pattern is that you support the people bringing the message, like the people planting these churches. That's the right pattern. I'm not going with that pattern. And why is that? Because Paul decided that because of his unique and really non-optional call to be an apostle to the Gentiles, being paid for his ministry could possibly place an undue obstacle in front of the gospel. I know the other people do it, and that's good for them. I just don't do it because I think, like in my position, especially with what's going on in Corinth, y'all have already divided into teams, and if I'm the guy you pay, that's the final nail in the coffin of this church. I think it places an undue obstacle in front of the gospel. That's the pattern of Paul's ministry. And then he begins to unpack this principle, like the principle behind his practice. He says, verse 19, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I may win more of them. Guys, I I know I'm free, right? I asked that question at the beginning. It's a rhetorical question. I know. I am free. Like, I'm free. I'm, I'm not a slave. I don't belong to anyone. And yet, I have made myself a slave to everyone, in the hope of winning more people to Christ. Like Paul's saying, listen, I'm not simply a slave to Christ. I am. I mean, I'm a servant of Christ, but I'm not simply a slave to Christ. I have also made myself a slave to those that Christ has called me to reach with the message of the gospel. I mean, this is a radical application of Matthew 20. Remember where Jesus is having a discussion with his disciples? They were always wondering, okay, like when the kingdom comes, who's sitting on your right and who's on your left? Like what are our jobs going to be? What are our titles? Like this is kind of a big deal. You are the Messiah. And Jesus tells them, hey, you know how the rulers in the world, the Gentiles, do you know how the rulers of the world kind of like manage their teams and manage what they're in control of. The rulers of the Gentiles are called benefactors, which means that the the benefits of what they're leading actually flow up in channels to them. If I'm over a kingdom or I'm over a city or I'm over a a business, all the benefits flow to me. I mean, that's the Gentile model. And Jesus says, not so with you. If you want to be First among them, you must be a slave. If you want to be a leader among them, you must be a servant to all, which is exactly what Paul is doing here. See, like Jesus is saying, hey, I know that you've seen that in the world. That's the normal pattern of things, not in church. <laughs> like, that's not how the church works. 
That's not how the people of God operate. Instead of the benefits flowing to you, the person who is the leader in your church should have the benefits flowing down from them to the people that he's shepherding. That's the way church works. Like I love what Chuck Swindoll says about this verse. He says, I am convinced that we haven't really begun to live the devoted Christian life until Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 9.19 can become our words. What do you think about that? Like what are you unwilling to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel? Like, what would you hold on to? Like, if you knew holding on to this is the thing keeping my loved one from hearing the message of the gospel, this thing that I'm holding on to is the one thing that has been an obstacle in sharing with my neighbor. Like, what are you unwilling to let go of for the sake of the gospel? And so what does this exactly look like? Paul tells us in verse 20, he says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. Like when I, when I am coming into town and I am like bringing the gospel into the synagogue, like I don't flaunt my freedom as somebody who's no longer under the law, right? The Old Testament law. I don't flaunt that freedom in front of them. Like Paul's pattern was this. I choose not to practice my freedom in Christ in the hope of advancing the gospel and seeing more people come to faith in Christ. A perfect example of this, I think, is, is Timothy. You know, Timothy meets Paul. He's a young believer and a young man. His mother is Jewish. His father is a Gentile. He's well spoken of in the church as a committed Christian man. And so Paul brings him along in his missionary journeys but remember, Paul's pattern is he goes into a city and he goes into the synagogue and he reasons from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. And so what's the first thing he does with Timothy after he calls him into ministry with him? He has him circumcised, which really seems like a huge contradiction from the teaching of Paul in the book of Galatians. Like they're fighting for, for people to be circumcised and then... Paul tells them no, and then the first thing he does with Timothy is he has him circumcised. Why is that? Because in Paul's estimation, that's going to advance the, the gospel. That's going to remove an obstacle out of the way because people know you, Timothy, and they know that your father's a Gentile, and they're going to be wondering as I go into the synagogue, who is this uncircumcised Gentile you're bringing in the synagogue? We don't want that to be an obstacle. We don't want circumcision to be the deal that they argue about. We want to keep the gospel front and center. And so Timothy, in a it's very sacrificial application of this principle. Allowed himself as a young adult to be circumcised. Paul goes on to say, verse 21, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, that I may win those who are outside the law. See, here, here once again is Paul's pattern. In some situations, I choose to practice a freedom that I have in Christ in the hope of advancing the gospel. Here's what this looks like. This looks like Titus. Remember Titus? We studied the book of Titus last year. 
You know, Titus was another companion of Paul in the ministry. He was full Gentile. He was the bishop of Crete and was in charge of that island and all the churches there appointing elders in every city. I mean, he was a faithful minister, co-laborer with Paul. And when the Jews complained that he wasn't circumcised, Paul said, get over yourselves. He's not going to be circumcised. He doesn't need to be circumcised. He's already received the Holy Spirit. Well, what was the difference? Well, you're dealing with two different categories of people. In the first category with Timothy, you're dealing with genuine weaker brothers who this was an obstacle in them hearing the message of the gospel. But with Titus, you have professional weaker brothers. You have legalists, what the Bible calls Judaizers, who were saying, listen, we're all about Jesus, like we're all about him as Messiah, but the way to receive the Messiah is first you have to be circumcised, you have to commit to obeying the Old Testament law, and then you receive Christ as your Messiah and your Lord. And Paul says, no, that's not the way it works. You call upon the name of the Lord and you're saved. And then you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Titus has done. Paul goes on to say, to the weak, I became weak that I may win the weak. Same goal, same goal as gospel advancement, but here Paul adjusts his standards to the conscience of others. He's doing what he's calling the Corinthians to do because this is the category they're talking about, the weaker brother. And so whenever I'm preaching, I'm always anticipating people thinking, yeah, but, yeah, but, giving a little pushback. And here's the pushback on this one. Pushback on this is like... Paul's got a problem. Like, what is he suffering from multiple personality disorder? He can't decide who he is. Like, if I'm one thing over here and I'm one thing over here, I'm not genuine. Guys, I got to be me, right? Like, I want to be real and I want to be authentic. And and this is who I am. To which I would reply, Christian, your true self and your true identity is slave to Jesus Christ. If you're lucky, if you're blessed, right, your title, your identity is slave. That's who you are. In fact, we don't get to be self-identified. Like we have a whole culture that's just gone off the deep end in regards to identity. But for us, like we don't get to pick our identity. When we receive Christ as Savior and Lord, we become bondservant to to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. I love how Thomas Schreiner, theologian, explains this. He says, the shape of a believer's life is to be cruciform. That word cruciform means cross-shaped, in the shape of the cross. So the shape of a believer's life is to be cruciform, which means sacrificing one's personal way of life for the benefit and good of others. Can I just tell you, I promise you, I have zero regrets. I mean, I've been a Christian for over 40 years. I've been a pastor for 33 years. I have zero regrets associated with with times I've chosen to give up anything for the sake of the gospel. Freedom, money, time, energy, resources of any kind. I have zero regrets of 
giving up anything for the sake of the gospel. All of my regrets run in the counter direction. Times where I've been too pig-headed to sacrifice my own freedom, to sacrifice my own stuff, to sacrifice my own time for the sake of the gospel. With those, I have regrets and even shame. But when I look back over 40 years of times where I've said no to me for the sake of others, no to me for the sake of my wife and children, no to me for the sake of the gospel, woe no to me for the sake of Christ's church, I have zero regrets from that. Paul concludes, I have become all things to all people that by all possible means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. See, Paul adjusted his choices, hear this, in neutral issues. Paul's not saying, hey, to the liar I became a liar, right? To the crackhead, I became a crackhead. Like to the embezzler, I became an embezzler so that I can reach embezzlers. No. These are neutral, non-sin areas, areas of Christian freedom. Paul became like the people he was trying to reach, refusing to exercise his freedoms for the sake of winning them to Christ. Like he didn't just understand where they were coming from. He became one of them. He didn't simply learn their culture. He became part of their culture. This is the MO of missionaries. Like when missionaries go out on the field, they don't require the people they're trying to reach to adjust to their way of dress, to their language, to their diet. No, they adjust those things for the good of others to get the gospel out. And that's exactly what Paul is trying to call these Corinthians to do, to say no to yourself for the good of a weaker brother or sister in Christ. Because Paul wanted a clear path to the gospel. Like what is an obstacle in the way of the gospel? Like what what's hindering you from getting the gospel to that person that you love? Like, what's tripping you up on the way to sharing your faith? Move it out of the way. I think another thing Paul was saying here is that uh, the Christian life is like baseball, not like karate. See, the difference is baseball is a team sport. It's a group of men and women pulling together for the good of the team. Karate is about you, you know, breaking boards and kicking people in the face. I mean, it's fun, sure, but it's not a team sport. Like sometimes in the middle of a baseball game, you may be called to make a real sacrifice. It's the bottom of the ninth. Bases are loaded. There's no outs, and you're up to bat. The score is tied, and your coach signals you from the side sidelines to do a sacrifice fly, to just pop it up and let the guy on third base come in and win the game. And you think, what? I can, I mean, I can at least get a double. I might be able to get a home run. And you're asking me to ruin my batting record so that, like, we can just win the game? Come on. But then it's called taking one for the team, right? That's what you do in baseball. And, guys, that's what you do in church. That's what you do in life. That's what you do in a family. It's not about your individual high score. 
And Scripture tells us that we will be done in this life when we're all done together. Like Paul said in uh, Ephesians 4, that God gave gifted people to the church to equip the saints for works of service until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the full stature of Christ. You know, one application of this principle is your sacrificial financial giving to this church, your sacrificial financial giving to missions. Another application that we're making as a church is uh, we have hired a church planter. I'd like you to meet him. This is James Foster. James is going to be joining our staff on July 1 as a church planter resident, and hopefully in the next year and a half, he'll be planting a church for us in the city of Taylor. That's pretty awesome, right? Amen. But guys, many of y'all know this because y'all planted this church. That's a sacrifice. Like it's a sacrifice. I was there at, at Hill Country Pflugerville when we sent out Hill Country Huddo and Hill Country Round Rock. And it was a huge sacrifice, not just financially, but those relationships saying bye to them. That's a big deal. But once again, it's not about our individual high scores. And what we need to do is not only maintain a mission trip mentality, we need to maintain a missionary mindset. We need to address, adjust our dress, our diet, our language, our schedule, our expectations to get the gospel out. And before you think this is just a Paul thing, remember, Paul is responding to a question they asked about how they should behave. Behave. And in addition, he concludes his overall teaching on this subject with these words, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Remember, we're only able to enjoy our freedom because Jesus sacrificed his. And so we need to adjust our lifestyles to advance the gospel. Do you have enough margin in your life, in your schedule, in your, in your financial resources? to give as God calls you to give? Like, do you have enough time in your schedule to serve in ministry, to meet your neighbors, to share your faith? Like, what would you give for the gospel to make it known, to make it unhindered? And what are you giving for the gospel? Paul concludes with this statement. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? But only one receives a prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I could lose that reward. I mean, y'all know, guys, that the winner of a race is not necessarily the fastest runner. It's the fastest runner who runs in the right direction, right? It's the fastest runner that competes according to the rules. Paul is just saying, hey, only those who are willing to sacrifice their personal rights in this life will be eligible for rewards in the next. And so finishing well is worth any cost. 
In fact, later Paul will say in 2 Timothy 2, uh, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure is near. I'm, I've kept the faith. I've finished a race. I fought the good fight. And now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness. So my question just in closing is, why does Paul include this illustration within an illustration? Remember, he's illustrating the principle, and then he breaks away from that and then inserts an additional illustration. Like, why does he introduce the metaphor of fighting and racing? Well, because the challenge for a radical realignment of our behavior and our attitude and our choices for the sake of the gospel is hard. Guys, it's hard. I mean, I think it's significant that both of these metaphors, fighting and racing, only get harder the further you are along in the competition. In that first round of boxing, man, you could punch your hand through a wall, but by the third or fourth round, your arms feel like jello. See, we're called not in a sprint, but in a marathon. And it could be easy to grow weary of doing good or to take your foot off the accelerator and think you can coast to the finish line. So what do we need to do? The writer of Hebrews tells us, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Let's do that right now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to come to this table of communion because it helps us to fix our eyes on you. You are the perfect example of everything we've been talking about this morning. You laid aside your rights, what you deserved, what was fair, for the sake of the men and women in this room. The boys and girls in children's ministry and student ministry. Lord, you gave up your freedom so they could have theirs. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, as we come to this table of communion, Lord, I pray our focus would be on you, on what you've done for us, that we would take the time to examine our hearts. Lord, that you would expose in us any unwillingness to yield our rights for the sake of the gospel. We pray through Christ. Amen. Jesus is the perfect example of the principle that we've been talking about tonight. But as later in 1 Corinthians 11, it teaches us it's important for us to examine ourselves before we take this bread and drink this cup see if there's any sin in our lives, anything unconfessed, anything that we haven't laid down. So when you just think about the principle of this passage of aligning your lifestyle to advance the gospel, is there anything you willingly are holding on to? Anything that you will not lay down for the sake of the gospel? that now and repent of it. 
if you're not ready, I just would encourage you not to take this bread, not to drink this cup. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink this, all of you, in remembrance of me. Join us tonight at 6.30 for our concert of prayer. We'll be worshiping together and praying uh, for our ministry teams and our mission uh, team and uh, really praying for those who would greatly benefit uh, from the application of this message to realign, radically realign our lives and our attitudes uh, to advance the gospel. And I say that they would greatly benefit. I almost said that uh, the people who would benefit the most from this, but the people who would benefit the most from the application of this principle is you and me. Like sin turns us in on ourselves. Like sin is narcissistic. It makes me the center of my own universe. Like we become like that snake who eats its own tail until nothing is left. Christ came that we would no longer live unto ourselves, but for him who died and gave himself for us. That's the gospel. Now, I'm going to be down front along with any elders who are present in the service and their wives if anyone needs to talk or pray. But with that, God bless you. Y'all have a wonderful day.